Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. You know, uh, Billy was talking about how cold it's going to be this weekend. Of course, a week from today, we should be home, uh, Lord willing. Uh, I think today there would be about a 60-degree difference between here and there. So... No, we, we, believe it or not, where I live, people walk on water. <laughs> and they even go ice fishing, too. <laughs> so uh, that's what we're, we're headed for. Uh, there's supposed to be a couple more inches of snow uh, Monday, Tuesday, and hopefully it's finished by Wednesday, but we'll still have shoveling. Uh, Gloria will probably have to shovel five or six times before uh, winter is, is done. So you could pray for her and have that exercise for sure. No pollen. No pollen. <laughs> the, the coldest I was ever uh, camping out in a tent was actually in Zambia. On July 1st, we were at a camp and, and got up in the morning. There was ice around the edges of the, the puddles and uh, it was cold. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was 90 degrees by noon, but it was cold, uh, cold in the morning. Uh, so it's been a joy to be uh, with you. We always enjoy our time here at Claremont. You've become very dear uh, to us, and we always look forward to, to being here. We head up to Ocala tomorrow. The De Silva's come in tomorrow night and take over. Uh, we've allowed them to have their place, and uh, so they'll they'll be here for uh, probably two weeks, and so we're off to Akala. I speak there on Sunday, and then head home Sunday afternoon. But we do enjoy uh, the fellowship here, and you dear people, and we love you very, uh, very much. And so look forward, Lord willing, uh, to next year, if the Lord be not come. We heard on the radio today. I'll meet you in the morning just inside the eastern gate over there. And so, uh, if not next year, we'll meet you one morning over there. So, Zechariah, I just want to point out two words to start with, one in chapter 9 and the other in chapter 12. In chapter 9, verse 1, it's the burden of the word of the Lord. So, burden. And then if you look at chapter 12, verse 1, again, uh, the burden. And so, that word sort of sets the stage for these two things. And so the burden would be, perhaps a translation would be a prophecy or an oracle or a word from, uh, but it usually indicates that it's a, a weighty matter. I remember years ago, teenagers would use the word, that's a heavy. Uh, I don't think teenagers talk like that anymore. I used to get in trouble when my kids were teenagers because I talked like teenagers used to talk and the language changes so fast. But uh, it's a weighty matter, an important matter. And so the Lord's giving these uh, important thoughts here to Zechariah. Verses in chapters 9 to 11, it's uh, primarily about God's grace, his future for Israel, his care and watch over Israel. And then from chapter 12 to 14, it's about God's glory and the return of the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. In chapter 9, uh, you have these movements. You have uh, three movements. You have uh, what's historical in verses 1 to 8. He looks back, at least from our perspective. He's looking forward, but 
looks to Alexander and uh, various uh, movements that Alexander the Great uh, was involved in. Uh, then he uh, looks at uh, the coming of Christ and he goes on to uh, the future for the people. And so uh, in, chapter, in verse uh, chapter, uh, oh yeah, that's chapter 9. In chapter uh, 10, then, you have these two messages he gives about the restoration of Israel. And then in chapter uh, 11, he talks about the shepherds. And there's three groups or three uh, movements there. He talks about the worthless shepherds who were not doing their job. He talks about himself as, we might say, the worthy shepherd. And then in verse 17 of chapter 11, there's this worthless shepherd again. I guess the first shepherds in verse 3 are wailing shepherds. And then in verse 17, there is a worthless shepherd. And in between, there is a worthy shepherd. The worthless shepherd in verse 17 could well be a reference to the coming false prophet and the fact that Israel will accept him and will follow him and listen to him, whereas they would not accept Christ and they only paid 30 pieces of silver uh, for him. Now, when we come to chapter 12 through to 14, a phrase that occurs a number of times is in that day uh, or the day of the Lord. So in the middle of verse 3, in the beginning of verse 4 of chapter 12, in that, that day. In chapter 13, verse 1, in that day. In verse 2, in that day. And time and time again, uh, that, that phrase is given as well as the day of the Lord. If you look at chapter 14, verse 1, behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Now, the day of the Lord uh, is used sometimes in the Old Testament of judgment that's imminent. And so Joel, if you read the book of Joel, he talks about the day of the Lord as what is going to happen in the short term, but also anticipates a future day of the Lord. I don't know how many of you ever read Reynolds Shower's book, Maranatha, The Lord Comes. Anybody ever read that? It's a, very, it's a great book, a definitive study really on the rapture and the tribulation. Uh, very, very well done. Uh, Reynolds Showers is with the Friends of Israel. Uh, for Ross's sake, I once met Reynolds Showers here in Florida in a washroom. <laughs> well, but not a Walmart, <laughs> but in a, in a washroom. <laughs> so... <laughs> But uh, Reddy Shower has, has written a great book. If you've never read it, uh, Maranatha, the Lord Comes. And it's, it's described as a definitive study on the uh, return of Christ. But he points out in there, he uses the phrase, the short day and the long day of the Lord. And the short day then is what Joel describes as a day of darkness and as the tribulation period. And the long day is, includes the millennial reign of Christ. And so when you put those two together, you have a period of at least a thousand and seven years long of uh, the day of the Lord. So sometimes it's referring to the judgment uh, part, and sometimes it's referring to the reign of Christ. Sometimes it's short term, the Lord's going to do this because it's a judgment term, and sometimes it's anticipating in the future uh, this coming day of the Lord. So when you get to chapter 14, uh, verse 1, it's the future day of the Lord. It looks ahead 
uh, first of all to the tribulation and then to the millennial kingdom. Now, I noticed in the last Cornerstone magazine, uh, David Dunlap has a book review, and I've not read this book, but I read his book review, and it's a book entitled Future Israel, and he gives a very good review uh, of that book and of the fact that it is a strong defense for uh, the future that God has intended for Israel. And he looks at reformed or replacement theology in this book, the author, and then gives reasons why God is not finished with, with Israel. And so uh, God has worked in our sort of framework of looking at things, we would say we are dispensationalists as opposed to holding to a reformed or replacement theology. We hold a dispensational perspective. For many centuries, from Augustine on, uh, the churches were uh, primarily amillennial. That is, they didn't believe in the millennial reign of Christ, so Anglican, Catholic, or amillennial. But from Calvin on, they became uh, churches associated with him, Presbyterian, uh, Reformed churches, uh, took a Reformed point of view, that says that the church started basically with Abraham. It was a Jewish church in the Old Testament. Now it's a Gentile church. Uh, they were the treasure hid in the field. Now we are that treasure that Christ has purchased. They were a holy priesthood. Now we are the holy priesthood. Uh, they were God's people. Now we are the Israel of God. And so they put all those together and say, here we are. Uh, Israel's gone and we are here. Uh, what this author, Dave Dunlop explains, this author explains how that view uh, gave rise and gives rise to anti-Semitism, the hatred of the Jews, because you think they're all God. He gives a quote from Calvin who, who says, it's too bad the Jews are still here uh, in light of what they did and God's rejection of them. And so we take a dispensational point of view. And by dispensations, we mean that God... God, though he is unchanging, the means of salvation is unchanging. God gives responsibility or stewardship. That's another word for dispensation, a stewardship. Paul says in Ephesians 3, a dispensation was given to me or a stewardship was given to me. And so God, God puts man under a condition. And so in the garden, of course, it was innocence. Uh, there was no knowledge of good and evil. There was only one restriction. Don't eat of that tree. And man failed under that that dispensation. And then, of course, there was conscience that followed that. Man knew what was good and what was wrong. And uh, Cain suffered the consequences for murder. And Lamech uh, bragged about what he had done. And that, of course, conscience led to the flood, where the, the thoughts of their hearts were evil continually. And so they failed under that. Uh, in innocence... Uh, you'd think that would work. Perfect world and God communing with them, but they failed there. Having the knowledge of right and wrong, they failed. After the flood, God institutes human government, the sanctity of life. And, you know, for, for centuries then, human government was the means. And, of course, that led to the Tower of Babel. And man said, we don't need God. We can make a name for ourselves. And so God chose Abraham out of the nations and gave him promises. And for, uh, for the years of the patriarchs, they lived under those promises. And then 
in Exodus uh, 20 gave the law. And for 2,000 years or less, they, they lived under the law, that stewardship. The law, of course, condemned. They couldn't keep the law, but it showed the holiness of God and how they fell short. And of course, now we are under grace. Um, the gospel's freely given. We're not under law. Uh, we have a conscience. We still have human government. We still have the knowledge of good and evil, but we're under grace, where we know that uh, we are saved only by grace. But in the coming millennial kingdom, the rule will be one of righteousness, where the Lord Jesus Christ will reign in peace and righteousness. Perfect justice will be meted out during that, that reign. And at the end of the Millennial kingdom, the reign of righteousness will come the eternal day. Peter talks about in Second Peter chapter 3. So there is a sense when at the end of time, uh, and I say this reverently, God, God would be able to say to humanity, look at this, I tried everything. Innocence, conscience, government, promise, law, grace, righteousness. Man still chose his own way. Uh, and God will be seen to be just and gracious and loving uh, through all of that. Now, as I said, the means of salvation is always the same. It's by faith. Uh, the, if you were talking to somebody from a Reformed perspective, they would accuse us of having two means of salvation, works in the Old Testament and grace in the New Testament. But we would say, no, people are saved by faith through grace. doesn't matter when they lived. They couldn't keep the law perfectly. So it had to be by grace. Genesis 6, 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that's always the basis of salvation through faith. Without faith, it's impossible uh, to please God. So in chapters, as I said, in chapter 9, 10, and 11, it's God's care over over, uh, Israel. But let's Look at a few thoughts in chapter 12 to chapter 14. And we'll read verses 1 to to 9 to start with. Zechariah 12, 1. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples, when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. It shall happen in that day. They will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away shall surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength, are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan and the wood pile, like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They'll devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so the glory of the house of David, the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater uh, than Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David will be like God. 
like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be a day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. We've talked about the hatred that people have, uh, seem to have, for uh, Israel and for Jews. And almost every day now in the newspaper or in Fox News, uh, there are, are accounts of anti-Semitism somewhere in the world, either in universities in North America. Uh, there was just an account today of a Canadian university where the professors were fighting back against uh, a student movement that was anti-Semitic, doing anti-Semitic things and saying things about Jewish people. It's happening in Germany and France. Uh, New Jersey's had Jewish cemeteries desecrated. I googled the United Nations resolutions from 2012 to 2017. Uh, Every year, the majority, the least, was 78% of them were against Israel. Usually it was 80 or 81% of the resolutions are condemning Israel. And so you think of all that's going on in the world, all the atrocities that are happening, and Israel gets condemned. So, for instance, in 2017, there was 27 uh, UN resolutions. 21 of them condemned Israel. So it's it's phenomenal that we support (laughs) that type of of thing. So there was one resolution against Iran, three against Syria, one against North Korea, one against Crimea, and one against the U.S. for the embargo on Cuba. So the U.S. was condemned under a UN resolution, but 21 out of the 27 against Israel. And so you can see how uh, Israel is just um, picked on in so many ways. Why is it? Well, because, of course, Satan is against anything that God is for. And so he persecutes the church and he's going to persecute Israel as well. And so here in the verses we read, it speaks of God's defense of the Jewish people and of the city of uh, Jerusalem, the restoration of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is an amazing city today. It certainly is divided into the quarters, the Armenian quarter and the Arab quarter and the Jewish quarter and so on. But the Jewish people, though they control uh, the city, they don't control, in some senses, the Temple Mount because Jordan has authority over that. Uh, They have to be so careful. They're really captive to the tourist industry and to uh, churches uh, such as the Catholic Church, they could never afford to offend them because tourism would stop. They would cut off all pilgrimages. And so in many ways, though they they control Jerusalem, in in other ways they don't control uh, Jerusalem. We would never allow it to happen here, what what happens uh, there. But God is not finished uh, with Jerusalem. Now, as you read this, you recognize that the language is is somewhat cryptic. It's not, again, it's not A, B, C, D. This is what's going to happen, then this, and then this. You know, if we were giving a scheme of things, we'd say, okay, what happens next? And what happens next? And we want it sort of laid out perfectly uh, for us. And so you read this, and it talks about uh, things like uh, striking every horse with confusion. It talks about uh, Jerusalem being a heavy stone, and those types of things. Now, when you put prophetic passages together, what happens, it seems, in the tribulation period, there are 
two sort of singular events that get Israel's attention. And I think they, one for sure happens in the middle of the tribulation, but I think the other one just precedes it. And that is, I think, the battle that takes, or is explained in Ezekiel 38 and 39, I think, takes place just before the middle of the tribulation period. And that's a battle where these nations that are militant uh, Muslim nations plus Russia come from the north, and God intervenes. There's an earthquake, and then they fight against each other. Israel doesn't have to defend themselves. They end up fighting against each other. And then uh, because of that, it creates a power vacuum that the Antichrist is able to step into. And one of the things he does is breaks the treaty that has been made. There was a seven-year treaty made guaranteeing the peace and prosperity of Israel. That treaty is broken in the middle, and the abomination that causes desolation is set up in the temple. So the antitype is what Antiochus did when he sacrificed a pig and put a statue of Zeus up in the temple. This man uh, will have his, his statue set up. The false prophet will cause people to worship that image. Well, Jews are finished with idolatry. Materialism is a different matter, but idolatry is, is anathema, is hatred uh, to them. And so when they see that happen, and they've seen uh, God at work and defending them, that's when they will turn back to the Lord. So if you read on in Ezekiel 39, it talks about Israel coming back to the Lord and acknowledging the Lord. And here, if we read on then, uh, we won't read all of these verses, but in, in verse 10, of chapter 12, and I will pour on the house of David and the heavens of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. So there is going to be repentance. But the day of atonement is for Israel is a day of, of remorse for sin. It's a solemn day uh, where they were to, to acknowledge their sin before uh, the Lord. And this, this will be the fulfillment of that day when they come back. And by faith, they see the one that they pierced and they return and say, yes, we, we crucified our Messiah. I mentioned on Sunday morning, one of the gentlemen at the breakfast, Mike was praying about uh, in January, said he's Jewish, and he said, we're still waiting for our Messiah to come. We're still waiting. And there have been lots of false messiahs, and there'll be more uh, yet, according to Matthew chapter uh, 24, there'll still be false messiahs that people will accept, and they'll accept the Antichrist and the false prophet. But there's coming a time when they'll look back and say, yes, we should have accepted him. He fulfilled all of Scripture. He was the Messiah. And we rejected him. And so there will come a day of national uh, repentance. But in in chapter 13, we looked at verses 1 to 6 briefly. But notice in verse 1, in that day a fountain. Two of our hymns had that thought tonight about water or a fountain. It's found again in chapter 14 and verse 8. In that day, it shall be that living waters flow from Jerusalem. And so in chapter 13, verse 1, a fountain will be open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And so there is this thought in Scripture 
that there is a, a fountain, right? Not like, a, not quite like the hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood, but there is this thought of, of water. The Lord Jesus said to the woman, I'll give you living water, you'll never thirst again. And so uh, in uh, Lament, uh, Jeremiah 2.13, right? My people have committed two evils and two sins. They've forsaken me, the fount of living water, and hewn out for themselves broken cisterns that will hold no water. And so there was the fountain of living water. They said, no, we don't want him. We'll try handmade cisterns. But of course, when they dry out, they crack, and the water runs away. I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but all the waters failed. And even as I stooped to, to drink, they mocked me as I wailed. And so uh, you have this thought. Uh, it's interesting when we get to chapter 14, he mentions the Feast of Tabernacles. In John 7:37, at the last day, the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Lord Jesus stood in the temple and said, Is anyone here thirsty? Come to me, and I will give him drink. I'll let him drink. And he's speaking of the spirit uh, within. And so there is this thought. And so God says, I'm going to open a fountain for cleansing. And so they repent and God does, God does the rest. Verses 2 to 6, then, he deals with idolatry. And we mentioned uh, on Sunday morning, verse 6, not about the Lord Jesus, but the false prophets who are saying, oh, I didn't go to the temple. I received these wounds in the house of my friends. That's how it happened. It wasn't because I was involved in idolatry. And then in verse 7 of chapter 13, we looked at verse, uh, verse 7, so let's go to verse 8, because the two uh, comings of Christ are in view here. Verse 7, his first coming, and verse 8 and 9, before his second coming. And it shall come to pass in, the, in all the lands, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third will be left in it. And I'll bring the one-third through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested, they will call on my name and I will answer them and they will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. What a transformation. But how solemn. He says two-thirds of them are going, to, are going to die. You know, in 1937, uh, there were probably close to 18 million Jews in the world. And of course, 6 million died in the Second World War. There are almost 18 million again in the world today, but two-thirds of them are going to die in the tribulation period. That was a terrible holocaust. If you go to Israel, one of the things you'll see your tour in Jerusalem is the Yad Vashem Museum, the Holocaust Museum. It's a, a terrible place. It's hard to, hard to go through and, and just to conceive of, of the inhumanity of man to man, how cruel people could be. Um, there's another museum, the Children's Museum, that I, I've never had the courage to go through what happened to the, the children. But the, the other museum, the Holocaust Museum, is terrible to go through, but they're going to suffer again. Remember, they said, we don't want this man to reign over us. And they're going to be brought to that point where they will say, yes, we will have him. And so he's going to refine them as silver and test them as gold in verse 9. Uh, the Lord does that. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 8, he said one of the reasons that he allowed them to suffer in the wilderness was to test them, to see what was in their heart. 
whether to be obedient or not. And so God tests. He tests us, doesn't he? Uh, the trial of our faith that works patience. Um, he says it's more precious than gold that perishes. And so the Lord's going to test them uh, through this tribulation. But at the end of it, he will say, this is my people. Now, in the book of Hosea, we mentioned this on Sunday Sunday morning of chapter 3, but of the three children that Hosea and Gomer had, uh, one of them, uh, Loami, means you're not my people. But now he's going to say, you are my people. Uh, you could write that over Israel today. You are not my people. But in the coming day, he's going to say, no, you are my people. And they're going to say, you're my God, as they come back to him. The Lord is my God. Uh, Mike read to us on Sunday morning from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, uh, the Shema, that the Lord, our God, is one Lord. And so uh, they will come back to him. And so that brings us to chapter 14. And here's the, this brings us into the end of the, the tribulation uh, period of what will take place. The, the devastation, uh, the attacks on Jerusalem and against his people, if you couple what he says here with what he says in Matthew 24, you know, pray not that your flight be on a Sabbath day and so on. And the fact that there's going to be this persecution, Revelation chapter 12, when Satan is cast out of heaven, he knows his time is short and he persecutes the woman and the man child. And Israel is divinely protected. The remnant is divinely protected. Some scholars feel that those Jews in that day will flee to the ancient city of Petra, which is in Jordan, and that it is there that the Lord will uh, miraculously intervene and protect them from this final outbreak of anti-Semitism as Satan tries uh, to destroy them. Verse 3, the Lord, this is chapter 14, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it uh, toward the south. And so what a dramatic change. When the Lord Jesus Christ left. He left from the Mount of Olives. Go back. Now it would seem if you piece together uh, what Isaiah says in chapter 63, that the Lord first of all returns to Basra. So Isaiah 63 pictures the Lord Jesus coming back, trampling in the winepress of the wrath of God. Uh, who is this that comes from Basra? And so it would seem that he comes there, comes up through Jezreel, uh, the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, and comes to Jerusalem and plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. And things are changed as he, as he does that. Uh, the mountain splits in two. Uh, it becomes a valley. Now, Jerusalem is 3,500 feet above uh, sea level. When you go to Jerusalem, you're going up a long, long way. When the Bible talks about going up to Jerusalem, you really are going up uh, to Jerusalem. But a, a valley will be formed. And so if you go down to verse 8, and in that day, the, that it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward uh, the western sea. So from the Dead Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, in both summer and winter, it shall occur. And so Jerusalem will become a seaport. The Dead Sea will be healed. 
Uh, of course, if you've been to the Dead Sea, you know you can lay there and you could read a newspaper. You couldn't sink in the, the, the Dead Sea. It's so dense and so full of salt that you just lay on the, on the water. And so uh, there's going to be great changes when the Lord comes. Geologically, things will be changed. Uh, verse 5 and, and 6, there will be uh, dramatic uh, changes when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back again as the kingdom is ushered in. So as the tribulation ends and as the kingdom is ushered in, there'll be some tremendous changes. As you look around the world today, you wonder how, how can things change? With the lifestyle we have, with the amount of garbage we produce, the amount of pollution, all these things. But somehow the Lord will take care of all those things when he comes back again. It doesn't mitigate or it doesn't take away our right to to be good stewards of what he has given us, but somehow the Lord is going to take care of that. These these waters that flow uh, will be healing waters. Uh, Jerusalem will be raised up and so on. Uh, The hills will be brought down. Remember, John came to make every hill level. Well, that'll happen when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, comes. And so he'll set up his kingdom, and we'll come to verse 16. Uh, just to to see what happens at the end. It'll come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up to Jerusalem should go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. The family of Egypt will not come up and enter in. They shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and punishment of all the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, holiness to the Lord will be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like bulls before the altars. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. And so here is the reign of Christ, perfect righteousness. Everything's dedicated uh, to him. It speaks here of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jews, uh, a pious Jew even today, in the Feast of Tabernacles will set up a booth. It's a Feast of Booths, it's sometimes called. It was originally a seven-day feast. Now they've added an eighth day to it. And so in John 8, or 7.37, that's the eighth day when the Lord Jesus said, if anybody's thirsty, let him come uh, to me. But the Feast of Tabernacles for the Jewish people anticipates the kingdom coming. It's interesting, of the seven feasts of Israel, uh, we can look back on four of them. The type has been fulfilled. And so the Passover, Christ our Passover, died for us. And in that uh, the unleavened the reality of what unleavened bread was about is true or found in us. Uh, first fruits, the resurrection of Christ, Pentecost, the start of the church. But the last three have not been fulfilled. And so trumpets, the regathering of Israel, atonement, the repentance of Israel, and then tabernacles, the rest that Israel will have and enjoy in the millennial kingdom when Christ rules and reigns. Now, one of the things that will be true in the millennial kingdom is he will rule with a rod of iron. He'll rule with perfect justice. People will still sin. 
uh, there will still be death in the millennial kingdom. The child will die being 100 years old, we read. There will be death. There will be judgment meted out, but there will be perfect righteousness. You won't have any corrupt rulers or leaders. There will be perfect justice. Nobody's taking a bribe. Uh, nobody's spending you know, $500 million to get elected or uh, any of those uh, things. None of that's going to happen uh, when Christ rules and reigns. But obedience will uh, still be demanded and sin will be punished. At the end of it, of course, when Satan is released, uh, there will be people unsaved who will gather to Satan and say, we don't want this man to reign over us. That's the heart of man. Uh, children born in the millennial kingdom still have to make their own choice. But the Lord says every year the nations somehow, again, we don't know how literal this is, what it means. Uh, does it mean the leadership? Does it mean every person? Uh, somehow there has to be uh, you know, observance of the Feast of Tabernacles where nations come to uh, Jerusalem. If they don't come, there will be consequences for them. And so the world will be very different. Now, the wonderful thing for us is we reign with Christ. It's a great thing. The uh, story I like is about a, a sem- seminary students were playing baseball and uh, the, the janitor was waiting for them to close up the school after they finished their game. And while he was uh, sitting waiting, he was reading the book of Revelation. And in their seminary studies, they'd been studying the book of Revelation, going through it verse by verse. Often in, uh, in seminaries in, um, in Greek, you have to translate uh, the book of Revelation uh, from English back to, to Greek, um, just as part of your course. So they, they were in-depth in it. So one of the seminary students asked the janitor, do you, do you understand what you're reading? So I was reading the book of Revelation. And the man said, yes, I do. He said, we win in the end. <laughs> That's it. Isn't that wonderful? We're there. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and uh, just for the wonderful prospect we have. We think of how the world treats Israel and the Jewish people uh, today, the rise of anti-Semitism. And uh, we would wonder, uh, if we're not for a revelation from the word of God, we'd wonder uh, what the results would be. But we thank you, Father, we can look to the end of the story. We see that your hand is in these things. There's coming a day you'll deal these nations that are against Israel, uh, you will exalt your earthly people. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ will come back and rule and reign. And we thank you for the prospect that we, uh, your bride, will rule and reign uh, with you. And so encourage us with these things. We again just commit to you these items were on the board for prayer and commit to each to you, each home, each family represented here. We ask your rich blessing on each one. Encourage them. Uh, each of us in yourself, and uh, may we enjoy your presence day by day and thoughts from your word that just help us keep our minds pure and clean. And may we live in the expectation of the soon return of the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.